Welcome to episode 236 of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. In this episode, I will be talking with Sean Livermore, a best-selling author, software engineer, consultant, and a tech startup founder. He wrote a book called Average Joe that has lit the world on fire and has given hope to people explaining that anyone in the tech world can create and that anyone on the peripheral of tech can break through to the center where innovation, creativity, and opportunity meet. And in this episode, we have the privilege to talk to him and hear from him sharing some of the greatest stories, tips, and advice that will certainly help you to advance in your engineering career. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm a mechanical engineer and software developer, and I provide engineering and software pros with professional coaching to help develop soft skills like leadership and mindset to unlock hidden potential and remove self-imposed roadblocks for career and life improvement. I also founded More Than Engineering to bring together my love for engineering and technology with my passion for helping people improve and live more fulfilled lives. Let me tell you a little bit more about our guest for today, Sean Livermore. Sean is the author of the Amazon best-selling business nonfiction book, Average Joe, Be the Silicon Valley Tech Genius. The book teaches anyone how to think, to speak, and create like some of the brightest tech founders in the world. It dispels the myth of the tech genius. Then in a very satisfying twist, it reveals how to become the myth yourself. Sean runs Product Perfect, a software consultancy, and lives in Southern California. You can follow Sean on Twitter with his Twitter handle, at Pants. Let me bring you into our main segment with a quote that is applicable to today's topic. This quote is from Steve Maraboli. Once your mindset changes, everything on the outside will change along with it. Now it's time for the main segment of our episode. Today's topic is all about crystallizing your message and speaking so that others are fascinated with what you have to share with them. I'll be talking with Sean Livermore, the author of the Amazon best-selling business nonfiction book, Average Joe, Be the Silicon Valley Tech Genius, and the CEO of Product Perfect, a software consultancy. Sean, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Glad to be here, Jeff. Now, Sean, before we jump in, can you give our listeners a bit of a personal introduction and tell us about some of the things you're working on right now? Been in technology 21 years, software development, uh, Microsoft stack, et cetera, consultant here in Southern California, and um, looking to write books and build tech products that help the world. Sean, as I said, you're the author of this best-selling book called Average Joe. And in this book, you talk about how a Google engineer pre-created Gmail. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? So 1996, I think it was, Paul Buchheit was in college and he needed a better way to get to his email instead of walking back to his dorm. And so he threw together what he actually serendipitously called Gmail at the time. I'm not sure if the reason was the same, but he scrapped it later, didn't finish the project, but it was web-based email. And so Paul was slow creating that all the way from 1996 to 2002 after he joined Google as employee number 24. And 
he thought to himself when he got hired, ah, I don't know, I think Yahoo and Excite is going to kick Google's butt, but you know, I'll join and perhaps some of the guys that I meet here are going to get me my next job. And he got in the door, built what eventually became Gmail, had nothing to do with the earlier one really other than web-based email, but it was the for realsies this time, right? And so it was an amazing and weird reoccurrence of the product in his brain and in his hands. That opens up the book as to the magic. You know, people said when Gmail came out, this is unbelievable. It was on April Fool's Day. And so they thought it was a joke at first. Who would give away a gigabyte of email, right? That's so much space. You know, <laughs> now we're like, we use a gigabyte with four pictures of our kid on their tricycle, right? So Buchite was slow creating. And so number one, there's no nothing magic in product creation. You know, we start talking about that tech genius archetype. We introduce the concept of that. And number two, it took him like years for his mind to really get around what that user experience should look like, feel like, and be like. And number three, he had to overcome the JavaScript anxiety disorder that everyone had back then. If you remember in the early 2000s, you know, you say the word JavaScript and people are ducking, you know, they're like, don't use JavaScript, whatever you do, right? It was like only hackers use this thing called JavaScript. Now, JavaScript is running on servers. It's running in the cloud. It's running in your fingers and your hands and your eyeballs. I mean, it's everywhere and everyone loves it and they build frameworks with it, right? So it's JavaScript or nothing. You have to have it. So he was kind of the web 2.0 pioneer charging through the forest with a machete, carving out new territory. But there's so much we talk about in the book, but that was kind of had the opening of it is, is uh, this genius moment that he had. That's awesome. And it's interesting to try and break down some of these pieces that are just everyday guys when we put on this myth of the tech genius. And I think you talk a lot about that in your book, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more here. But you also talk about this worship of in intelligence and how it kind of shapes the industry. Can you tell our listeners how genius or intelligence worship and the overemphasis of these psychometrics really helped shape the tech industry as it is today? In World War II, we're trying to figure out, as they were cataloging and classifying the recruits, where do we put this guy? And they'd say, well, you go in the trenches and you work in the office with these guys and do strategy work. And they came up with a mechanism and a methodology of psychometrics that would effectively rate and score. So they'd know who goes to the trenches and who stays in the office. Zooming out and, and taking a step back, the origination of that, it really does have to do with this search for genius. The early psychometric pioneers had this wonder kid fascination. Havelock Ellis back in 1904 he was from the European area and he did this extensive decade long research project to try to figure out where the geniuses are, who they are, what they ate for breakfast, who their parents were, what they looked like, how, you know, the shape and the distance between their ear and their nose. And I mean, he just went to extensive levels and the result was very disappointing. Actually, he really could not identify the genetic, the composition, the, the now, of course, we're talking about 1904, right? So it's not like he could do blood and urine samples in a kit that comes in the mail or anything like that. But there was quite a bit of research done. Moving along, the genius search has never really stopped. Lewis Terman had these in 1922 at Stanford. He was fascinated with genius and he continued to search for it. So he did this multi-decade project. In fact, he followed these kids all their lives and he handed off the work to others and they began to see even though his research was slightly flawed, he didn't quite do it right in terms of a control group and an experiment group. But he began to see that 
there were some kids that, yes, you identified them as, wow, that's a wonder kid. That's a Bill Gates about to happen sort of thing. And there were other kids that really surprised you, that you look at them and you look at their scoring and their activity in class and where did that come from, right? This guy's freaking brilliant and he did amazing things and he wrote books and he created novels and or uh, you know playwrights and, and masterpiece music and whatnot. The end result was that there really was no, again, reputable moment that, that you could say, this is data. And that is a wonderful thing. And these stories of smart professors being fascinated goes back and, and continues on, even though they're not aware of each other. Many parallel studies really looking for that, that great person with something more. And this goes back to Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish philosopher in 1840, who wrote 80,000 words about this great man with something more. And he called it the great man theory. And this great man theory supposes and posits that all of humanity seeks to worship, right? We all look to worship and, and not necessarily niched on intelligence, but generally speaking. And it ties back to Odin, a, a Norse a mythical god that walked the earth with ravens on his shoulders and wolves at his side. And the ravens would fly out in the morning and then come back at night and whisper in his ear what happened. And the wolves would go out and do his bidding. Odin empowered these Viking warriors on the battlefield to make them impervious. In fact, that's where we get the word berserk from, as they would become what they called berserkers, right? So no one could affect them when they were empowered with Odin. And this great man with something more has this feeling of empowerment of the genius gene, you know, the Elon Musk standing in front of the starship behind him as they launch, you know, and we see other tech genius archetypes standing on the NASDAQ and hitting the button and going public and wow, you know, that's their moment. And, you know, all the techie nerds out there seek the glory, right? And so they find themselves on message boards posting things like Bitcoin at, on Halloween night, you know, in 2008. So, so many moments of tech nerd glory that kind of seem laughable in, in some ways, but actually point back to these moments of trying to become that great man with something more. So the first few chapters touch on that, but the, the search for intelligence is a very real thing. And we have overemphasized psychometrics. We've let it get out of hand. Oh, I can't get into that college because my score on the SAT was 10 points too low. Well, I understand there are margins and certain ways of scoring and our society is built into these brackets. You know, we pay our taxes a certain way. We drive on the freeway within certain margins of error. And at the end of the day, though, if you allow a psychometric score to stop you from launching your startup or you know, pursuing a career or writing that piece or building that website or applying to a certain college, then you've lost, right? You've lost that battle already, whether you're a great person with something more or you're just an average Joe. One thing I think you also talk about is being bound sometimes by standardization. I think you even call it the chains of standardization. So how would you say that engineers and others can position themselves to remain unbound by these chains of standardization as they can kind of creep in on, on work and life? I think that's a great question. I end the book with a quote, sorry, spoiler alert, but this idea of uh, Charles Dickens, who looked up to Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle was like six foot four. Dickens was like five foot five or something. You know, there was like a foot between them. And Dickens was kind of a lean, scrawny dude. Uh, of course, he was the greatest novelist of the Victorian era, right? So Dickens would knock on Carlyle's door and he'd get mentored by him. And, and this great man with something more in a booming voice would tell him all the, the hero worshiping things. And Dickens would just be enamored by that. 
And Dickens actually carried around Carlyle's book for years and read it hundreds of times. Apparently, people have written that he did. Dickens' quote at the end of the book was, we forged the chains we wear in life. I think it's fascinating. The same guy who wrote that kind of chained himself down, didn't he? And if Dickens only knew that he would be the one to change that whole generation of readers' minds about politics and, and love and so many other topics that he wrote that affected the, the society around him. I think we do bind ourselves and we forge the chains that we wear around in life. So in our careers, I do believe that the cubicle, the rat race, the hierarchies, they require a little bit of pushback. And as an entrepreneur, one day I'm unemployed, the next day I have too much business, I can't even handle it. So there is a little bit of a a trade-off that you get in in living in the W-2 employee world where things are more safe and you can pay the mortgage reliably and venturing off into the unknown. But I don't know if that necessarily is for everybody. So I think to be unbound by chains of standardization, thats it's a tough question, but I think really the portrayal of your own narrative, how do you position yourself within your career? Are you just an engineer, whether you're a civil engineer or a software developer or a data guy, maybe you're building in, in the construction industry, whatever you might be doing, but solving problems, creating value, are you pigeonholing yourself? Are you limiting yourself in any way? And is there a a series of plateaus that you can continue to climb five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out? And what is holding you back from that very next plateau? You don't know your plateaus, but you should probably take a moment and step back and talk to some others and do some career planning. But just my two cents, I suppose. I appreciate that perspective, helping people look and really identify and analyze what's really right for them. Because some of those things that are standardized, as you say, may not be right for everyone, but they could be good for you. But looking at those plateaus and those different places that we might end up can help us evaluate where we're at along the way. So that's good advice. Now let's transition a bit. And I want you to talk about this slow create framework that you describe in your book. Can you tell us what it is and how it can help people to organize thoughts to increase problem solving abilities? I met up and spent time with a professor, Dr. Jesse Risman, PhD out of UCLA, a professor of neuroscience for a good part of the year in 2020 during COVID. And I learned a lot about how the brain really works. I feel like I got a master's degree in neuroscience this year. We were searching out a creativity framework that would help anyone, even the average Joe, quote unquote, be able to create. Tech products is how I entered the conversation, but uh, SaaS products, uh, software design, but you know, it doesn't really matter because you can expand that umbrella quite large uh, and cover quite a bit of different technical creative areas. But he and I really realized that other than brainstorming and mind mapping and a couple different plotting techniques, there really isn't and wasn't a creativity framework that anyone could pick up and learn within an hour and begin to document and plot out their ideation cycles and their creative work. And so we decided to create one. So together, he and I uh, worked really hard and we created the Slow Create Framework. And what it is, it's a series of, of artifacts. It's all free. You can go to slowcreate.com and download all the PDFs and watch the videos. And what it does is it allows anyone to plot out the various different products you're creating, ideas you're ideating on and iterating on and problems you're solving into a canvas, into if you've ever seen like the business model canvas, for example, where you plot out like who are your competitors and how do you make money and so forth. 
you plot out the ideation cycle and, and the problem you're solving into the canvas, patterns, details, secrets, factors, problem domain, you know, influences, and you look at the canvas from left to right and you, you bait the hook as you go into this mindless work ladder mode where you, on a daily basis, you have moments throughout the day and throughout the week that you drift off and you daydream. You're in the shower. You're just thinking about 20 different things, right? You're solving problems. And what is happening in those moments of, of what we call mindless work? what neuroscientists call mindless work, I should say. And this is all backed by neuroscience and hundreds and, or even thousands of studies all the way back to where they discovered the default mode network uh, 15 or so years back and even further, depending on who you credit it with. But the mind is flipping off a switch and flipping on another switch. You're, you're turning off the executive control network, which is your decision-making, trading today for tomorrow. What bill should I pay? What exit should I use on the freeway? What should I eat for lunch? Emails. Let me reply to this one before that one. You're turning off that switch and you're flipping on a different switch. You don't realize you are, but you are. It's called the default mode network. And the default mode network is, they call it the default mode because it's always on. Well, I shouldn't say always on, but it's on when you're not on. It's on when you're not thinking, right? So as soon as you stop thinking, it starts working. It's the background threads, right? And scientists used to think, well, once you're not thinking about anything, the engine's off, right? You turn off the car, it stops running. But the mind is the opposite. Once you stop thinking about something, the car turns on. And 60 to 80% of all the energy you use in, in your brain is from the default mode network. Having known that and, and watching it under the CAT scans and the PET scans and all the different techniques that they use, it just lights up. Colors are firing. Things are happening. And so what we do is you walk down a ladder to let go. L-A-D-D-E-R is the acronym. Let go. Antenna, you become this antenna, you kind of zone out. D is drift, D is daydream, E is emerge, and R is recharacterize. And you recharacterize what you were trying to solve, how you baited the hook before you threw the line out to kind of go fishing. And then you ask yourself, did I get a nibble? Did anything bite? Did I feel like something connected while I was doing that mindless work task of sorting laundry or doing the dishes or the long commute to work? In that framework of the canvas, you eventually begin to, to derive inflections from that and solve the problem or ideate through the solution. If you have many canvases, you can stack them and we call that a pipeline. There's some animations that we can include for that on the website and videos that explain it. And then there's the funnel that explains how to follow it. But we've gotten a lot of great feedback about the framework because it's allowing people that never thought they were creative, that never really considered themselves on that spectrum I'm an engineer. I sit over here with the other engineers and all the creative people are over there in the marketing department. You know, well, that's not really true, is it? Because engineers are some of the most creative people you ever meet. They're solving problems, deriving from a vast plethora, a quiver of arrows. I mean, they've got so many areas they're pulling from and layer upon layer, three-dimensionally, they're creating. And so creativity is not a, a person either. It's not about being creative or not being creative. It's a process. It's not a binary switch like I either am or am not creative. It's I am in a creative process at all times when I'm doing work, whether I'm aware of it or not. It's nice that you focus on that at the end, that anyone can be creative if they use the right process. And it sounds like the slow create framework to me is a lot about really just prepping the brain to do what the brain is designed to do and allowing those problems that we need to solve to happen, not just at the conscious level, but sounds like at the subconscious level as well in those other times, as you call it, I think, the auto mode or default mode network, so that it, our brain can really keep chewing on those or 
looking or fishing through that problem so that we can then come and and then being aware of that those different solutions emerging that's a really cool way to to put it i want to talk a little bit more about the slow create framework so what happens after someone masters this and really starts working on this allowing their brain to work in this way and how can it help increase someone's speaking abilities there is a natural inclination for an engineer to get caught up in the data. I think that is probably one of the most tragic things is to see people who are so intelligent. When you ask them a question, they stutter and they hum and and putter around and you kind of feel like you want to help them out. And I am one of those persons. It's taken all of my life to even be able to have a conversation with you and, and learn how to say no to all the other ideas and just focus on one thing to say and let it come out from my brain and my gut out to my mouth, to your ears. But I created in conjunction with Dr. Jesse Risman and it kind of then spawning out on my own a bit, this thing called the triad. It's called the sustainable mystique triad. And so the book talks about mystique and let's figure out and, and take a moment to just embrace that word for a second. You know, have people like Elizabeth Holmes with Veranos who tried to talk in a deep voice and, you know, deceived countless investors out of over a billion dollars in total funding and total losses. You have people like Adam Newman of WeWork who somehow convinced Maya Soshi Son from SoftBank to invest $4 billion, eventually turned into $6 billion uh, during a brief car ride. He was in the car. Yes, he had met him before. Yes, he toured the office before. But still, they got in the car, not investing. They left the car whipping out an iPad and with his finger signing off on a term sheet. How do you do that? How do you speak so well that people want to hand you their taxed dollars, right? That's in- insane. And having pitched 130 times and raised money six times, I know what it takes to pitch to investors. I've created, and I'm a technical founder. I'm not a sales guy. I don't walk around with, uh, you know, hey, let's talk about fishing and your boat and what, you know, I don't get that salesmanship thing. It's not my deal. I just don't, I don't feel comfortable in that. In fact, I avoid it. If anyone calls me and I think they're a salesman, I'm out of there, man. I got to go, dude. On On a Zoom call, I got to go. Anyone can become fluent at their ideation and creative cycles, and anyone can learn how to be fluent at their craft of speech. And so I took an engineering approach and I created a triad and this is called the sustainable mystique. Why sustainable? Because the magic dust, the clever craftiness of a founder that doesn't really have any substance to work with, that's not sustainable. It's really vapor. You're selling vaporware, you know, your, your startup and you are worthless. You know, there's a dime a dozen of hustle and hype entrepreneurs and there's a whole market for hustle and hype entrepreneurs. Hey, don't, you know, do the grind every morning, get up at 5 a.m. And then you work till 2 a.m. And you get up the next day and three hours of sleep and you do it again. And oh my God, you can just pound on that wall hard enough. You know, that's not really sustainable and that's not effective. Eventually the balloon deflates. And so sustainable mystique, however, it is defensible. It is truth and it is structured. And so you're taking all the subject matter of a hard-earned career, all the time you've invested, all the days and nights of, of heavy lifting, of practicing your craft, of learning your hard work into this funnel of laser-focused communicative structure. And out the other side comes fascination, where the audience hears how you said something, how you crystallize the verbiage, and their eyes get bigger and they go, wow, I don't think I've ever heard it said that way before. Who are you? Tell me more about you, right? And then you have them. And the investor, I've I've seen it in their eyes myself. 
they go from, I don't know about this guy to let's connect this guy to the other 10 guys that we like, and let's see what they can do with him. And let's see how her, she can connect the dots in this other problem over here. And I'm really excited about what they're doing. Let me tell my other buddy and my other partner, the circle gets bigger because you've taken the time to craft it. And so the sustainable mystique triad in uh, chapter 10 and 11 really does transform an engineer from a data head to a performer. You don't feel like you're a performer. It feels true because it is true. It's you, it's your work, but it's how you say it. It's how you frame the words that really do make the difference. Sounds like there's a lot there that engineers can take and use as a framework to try and really improve their communication of of the ideas. Because I feel like so often engineers feel like their great ideas get stifled and they're not able to be listened to. But sometimes that is just a a lack of being able to communicate the true value of what they're trying to bring. And sounds like this could be a great framework to help them. So Sean, in the end, if growing a tech startup or really just taking an idea and bringing it to fruition isn't magic, what is it really then? And maybe you can talk about a hacking story of Dropbox or something like that that you know. So in 2019, I sat down with Sean Ellis, the originator of the phrase growth hacking. He was the magic dust carrying uh, entrepreneurial sales guy that not sales guy, but he kind of felt like a sales guy because he had good teeth and good stature. And he just kind of has this confidence about him. And I love that. He's a good guy too. Solid dude. So we had a great burger in Newport beach and really enjoyed our conversation about Dropbox and what really happened there. And what I thought happened was he walked into the project and he waved his magic wand and moved the needle. And they went from a couple million of value coming out of Y Combinator, eight developers to hundreds of people and over 10 billion with a B in value in pushing the button to ring the bell on the NASDAQ. But what I learned was actually very far from that. It, it, uh, growth hacking did not come from a magic moment from magic dust. It came from procedural experimentation. We really debunked that myth of the tech genius. And he really had that tech genius persona, didn't he, right? The, this guy that, that made it happen. But what they did was they, they installed a culture of experimentation, and he was able to convince them to systematically walk through experiments. And one of the experiments was the result of a secret. And we talk about secrets in the book and how you got to be on the prowl. You got to be always absorbing those secrets and, and cataloging them and, and uh, logging them in your database of your mind, of your subject matter. And what is the secret today that I'm going to hold on to and write down and put in my log? He had a secret that his buddy, the founder of Ring, Jamie Siminoff had discovered that when you have this mutual benefit, both to the sender and the receiver, we call it the principle of mutual benefit. And that was the secret that he shared with Sean Ellis at a conversation earlier in the year, about six months prior. And Ellis just held onto it. He put it in his back pocket. He pulled it out in just the right time, dropped it into one of the marketing experiments and said, I know we'll give 50 megabytes to the sender and we'll give 50 megabytes to the receiver. Simple little it didn't take much magic dust there. It was just procedural and, and just knowing that information and giving it a shot. And instead of a 1Z, 2Z kind of 5% uh, jump in the experiment results, they had a 300% jump or something to that effect. That was a huge spike. And so that opened the eyes of the whole team. And they took that and blew it into like 20 different versions. And they found the ones that worked the best. And it just drove up their growth from 2008 you know, into the next five to six years and they became a household name and everyone loves using Dropbox. I love Dropbox. 
Ellis made a comment in the interview that I love, and I've kind of pressed rewind to hear it a few times, but he said it was a beautiful product. It was a perfect product. They had perfect product execution. And he said, and that was really the magic, if you ask me. And I just paused on that for a moment and put a pin on it. That was the magic, you know? So I don't want to take anything away from the product team. It really does matter to build a perfect product. And that's kind of why I named my software company Product Perfect is because the elegance of software is primary. Evan from uh, Twitter is famous for saying, it's always been about the user experience. It never changed. Why have we strayed away from that? Well, we haven't. It's just that people who don't realize it's about the user experience, they're the ones you know, that are screwing up the corporate culture. Or they're, I think oftentimes we promote sales guys to, in, to the CEO role. Nothing wrong with that. If you are one, great. However, the danger is, is that there's a diminishing emphasis upon the product, upon the user experience, upon the design, upon the branding, and there's an elevated upon the black and white numbers, you know, how much in profit, how much in revenue and sales and Steve Jobs versus the current CEO of Apple. Those are a juxtaposition comparison yet. Yes, the current CEO has been a CFO before and he's driven up sales, but I think Elon Musk said it best. I think the CEO should come from two paths, either the the design path or the engineering path. And if you keep a CEO rising to the top from those two channels, you're probably going to have someone that that values that end customer magic, that experience. So coming back to the original question from that rabbit hole, the magic of Dropbox was not based on personality. This is good news for everyone, okay? It was based on procedure. It was not based on a person or a personhood, talent, you know, intelligence, genius, creative ability, any of the above. You just check all the boxes. It, it wasn't any of that. It was based on data, science, fact, research, process, proof, evidence, experimentation, trial and error. I mean, stumbling around in the dark, you know, reaching for the light switch. I mean, that is what drove Ellis to become the godfather of growth hacking. So it's nice to know that those same procedures, those same processes, those same ideas are available to all of us, that it's not just reserved for those true uh, genius archetypes with the super IQs and whatever else that we kind of idolize or, or worship, as you say, that those same ideas and systems can be used by all of us. And I like that message. Sean, I appreciate this chat and I've learned a lot and I know our listeners will as well. So how can our listeners, if they want to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that and gain access to this book that you've just released and uh, anything else that you want to share to connect people with you? So the book website is averagejoetechgenius.com and SlowCreate Framework is at slowcreate.com. And then Product Perfect, if you need a software implementation, migration, or custom software, is at productperfect.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at ShawneePants. At this point, we're going to transition into the Take Action Today segment of the show. And when we come back, Sean's going to give us one key takeaway from our talk today. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. Today, Sean is going to share with us the one thing he's learned from his many experiences as a tech founder and entrepreneur and working with neuroscientists to help you get to the next level of your career. Jeff, I think the one thing to take away would be that you don't have to have high IQ or high levels of creativity. You don't have to be a perfect 
10 on the uh, ability to execute your vision or your dreams. You just have to be extremely present, extremely driven, and, and narrow your focus and communicate in an incredibly articulate way. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for that. And thanks for all the things you've shared on this episode today. We look forward to everyone being able to hear and, and learn from you and, and more of the resources that you have to share. All of the resources and links will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jeff. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. Go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And don't forget to check out our upcoming live webinar for this month at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Additionally, for those engineers and tech workers looking to get hired or make a career transition, I have created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering career endeavors. The strategies that you heard in this episode will be of no use to you unless you take action and start to implement them in your career immediately. To help you do that, we have designed a system that you can use at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. It combines live monthly webinars with PDHs, plus a private forum giving you access to coaches and premium content focused on helping you build your management and leadership skills. Join us for our next live webinar at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and we'll help you engineer your own success.